This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine, based on the true story of championship-winning quarterback Kurt Warner. American Underdog, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters everywhere Christmas Day. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. If anything has become crystal clear about the Beltway in the last few years, it's the fact that the swamp is much deeper and dirtier than many of us had even dared to suspect. First, we had the Russian collusion hoax. Then it was the Ukrainian phone call hoax. Now that the U.S. Department of Justice has dropped the case against former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, President Trump is making reference to Obamagate, which some are calling the biggest political scandal of our time. And Obamagate, of course, makes reference to the Obama administration's abuse of power in organizing the effort to target and remove President Trump from office. My next guest has had a front row seat to much of what has gone down, and he confirms that the deep state is very real. Matthew Whitaker served as acting attorney general of the United States from November 2018 to February 2019. He previously served as chief of staff to former attorney general Jeff Sessions and as a U.S. attorney. Now back in private life, he is out with a really compelling new book. It is called Above the Law, the inside story of how the Justice Department tried to subvert President Trump. And Mr. Whitaker, great to have you with us. How are you? I'm doing very well. So thankful to be with you today. Thank you. You say that when you were chief of staff to Attorney General Sessions, the DOJ was, I think you said, a hotbed of plotting, back-channeling, and leaking, which doesn't sound so great. But what did you observe about the deep state even before you became the acting attorney general? Well, I, I saw there were pockets within the Department of Justice. It appeared to me within other departments uh, inside of the executive branch that were trying to frustrate President Trump's lawful agenda. Uh, I look at areas like immigration. I look at areas like religious freedom. I look at those, you know, sort of those and several others where it just was very hard to get anything done consistent with the, you know, what had happened uh, with President Trump winning the election by an electoral college landslide. And it was very obvious to me that there were folks at the Department of Justice and elsewhere that just did not want this agenda to be implemented, that the, that the American people had elected the president to accomplish. And, you know, we pushed very hard, the president pushed very hard to um, accomplish his agenda in spite of all of the other things that were going on, like the Russian collusion fable, Mueller investigation, Ukraine, you point out, uh, you know, and, and the phone call that, that turned into impeachment. So, you know, I look at what we accomplished, and one of the things I write about in my new book is the things we didn't accomplish in spite of this institutional resistance and the distractions that we faced. Well, yeah, and, and that was not an easy job to take on. Did you have any misgivings at all about taking on that responsibility as acting attorney general at the time when you came in, which was right kind of in the middle of the Russian collusion nonsense? Or did that situation actually draw you toward taking the job? Well, I mean, obviously, I think a lot of Americans uh, saw it the same way I did, which is if the president of the United States asks you to do something, you do it because he believes that you can accomplish uh, the mission. And so, you know, I, you know, I had been at the Department of Justice for over a year as chief of staff. I had been a U.S. attorney for five and a half years in the Bush administration. It was a, a institution that I understood well. It was people that I had long standing relationships with. And so I knew I could drive the agenda 
uh, until Bill Barr was appointed and confirmed by the Senate. So it was something I had confidence in. I also, you know, leaned heavily into my faith, um, you know, kind of in, in prayer to make sure that I had the strength uh, and the wisdom to do the job uh, to the best of my abilities and, and to make sure that we could um, continue to move the ball forward and protect the American people from, you know, so many um, dangers that are out there on a daily basis. Oh, yeah. Well, it was a tough job. But yes, we, we needed somebody good in there. And, you know, you really came under heavy fire. You had Representative Jerry Nadler after you, the Democrats, the media. But he said in November of 2018 that your appointment was part of a pattern of obstruction into the Mueller Russia probe. How, how do you reflect back on being the personal target of the left? I guess it comes with the territory. But how do you view it now, now that, you know, you have some time and distance from that situation? Yeah, I knew that that criticism was going to come with the role. And I knew that uh, I was going to do it with great honor, great enthusiasm and and follow regular order and make sure that I obeyed the law and the Constitution like uh, you would expect every public servant to do. Um, You know, I I remember how, um, you know, sort of there were those that believed I was going to somehow uh, obstruct or interfere with the Mueller investigation. But actually, when I took over that investigation, uh, I realized that it was really a obstruction of justice trap, that there was no uh, evidence of collusion, and that actually the obstruction of justice trap that they had set uh, was waiting to either, you know, catch the president or catch myself or catch others. Um, And so I was, you know, very careful to, um, you know, do things uh, consistent with the law. I knew that any action that I would have done to shorten the investigation could have actually prolonged it. Uh, because of their, you know, this obstruction of justice trap that I described. And so, you know, it was uh, it was a harrowing time. But at the same time, uh, I look back and I and I think, you know, not only did I do the best I, I could, but I did it with uh, great honor. And uh, and so I, I feel like, uh, you know, history will be kind. And that's why I wrote this accurate historical account of my time at the Department of Justice. Well, it's really important. You explain in the book, for instance, you didn't fire Robert Mueller because of the political disaster that it obviously could have been for the White House. What I find interesting, though, is now that all the people know there was no evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia and that the Steele dossier was fake and all the rest of this stuff, it was Peter Strzok who had texted to Lisa Page in 2017, there's no there there. So why did Mueller proceed in what seems to be, as you said, an obstruction of justice trap, you know, why did he head into it knowing there was no there there were it not for the fact that they wanted to find something even going so far as to leak disinformation that Mueller might be looking into Trump's family, which wasn't even the scope of the investigation. Right. I I think that's uh, exactly what it was. I think he had some people on his investigation that thought that this was going to be the defining moment in their career. I think of Andrew Weissman as an example of that type of person that was trying to burnish his resume and his, uh, you know, his uh, fame and fortune. Uh, Now he's, you know, having fundraisers for Joe Biden. Um, But anyway, you know, I look at the team, I look at sort of, there was never, you know, you talk about how Strzok and Page communicated that there was no there there. You know, not only that, but everyone from the Obama administration that went in front of the House Intel Committee said they had no evidence of Russian collusion. I was told when I took over the Mueller investigation in November of 2018, there was no evidence of collusion. The Mueller report said there was no evidence of collusion. And quite frankly, on January 4th of 2017, still while the the Obama administration was in place, they were going to close the uh, counterintelligence investigation into the you know Russian collusion. So yeah. there was never any evidence. Uh, you know, I think I think I think Mueller and his team did a disservice for 
keeping the investigation open as long as they did. But it's very clear to me, as I said earlier, that this was you know merely slowed down and kept open in hopes of you know creating this obstruction of justice trap, which you know part two of the Mueller report outlines exactly you know kind of how a president's tweet was viewed as an attempt to obstruct justice. It, yeah. it was uh, yeah. it was uh, kind of a disgusting uh, abuse of you know the Department of Justice's investigative powers. Oh, yeah, it was terrible. And you talk also about the investigators during your tenure there as acting attorney general putting together part two, I guess it was, of the Mueller report, what you've called political journalism. Can you speak to that and and what troubled you about that portion of the investigation and what they were doing there? Yeah, and actually it was one of the reasons that I wrote this book is I read the Mueller report. And when I got to part two, you know, I just recalled being told during the entire time that I was expecting to get the report myself that was delivered six weeks after I left to Bill Barr, that the theory of attempted destruction of justice was not only not was not valid, uh, current, according to how the Department of Justice conducted business, but also that there was, you know, it wasn't just a reliance on the um, the OLC memo that said you can't charge a sitting president, that it was you know, and there was no evidence to rise to the level that they would even have to consider the OLC memo about charging a sitting president. And so, you know, I, I look at part two. I think it's, uh, you know, it's a very unfair, you know, we as prosecutors don't exonerate and we don't not exonerate. We either charge or we close our case because there's not enough evidence. And so, uh, you know, this is something I talk, a theme that I talk about in the book, how regular order demands not 45, 450 page documents uh, outlining all the evidence you you know came brought together. It demands that justice is done and that you either charge or you close your case. Exactly. We're going to pause for a short break. Matthew Whitaker with us, former acting U.S. Attorney General and author of Above the Law. We'll be coming back right after this on Janet Effort Today. From Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine comes American Underdog. Undrafted out of college, quarterback Kurt Warner found himself stocking grocery shelves while trying to hold on to his dream to play in the NFL. I have been working for this my entire life. God is going to do something great with you. Based on the true story, American Underdog. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. In theaters everywhere Christmas Day. More information is available at AmericanUnderdogInspires.com. If you're looking for adventure, serving as a volunteer on the Mercy Ship is an adventure like no other. And you'll be serving on the largest non-governmental hospital ship in the world, providing free care to some of the world's poorest people. Whether it's performing a surgery, cleaning the deck, or transporting a patient to a recovery center, every day you'll be making a difference in the lives of struggling people. Begin your adventure today. Connect with us at mercyships.org. It's an adventure of a lifetime. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent his son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bibleist believers around the world for only five 
$5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800-YESWORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800-YESWORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now, here's Janet. Thank you for being with us, and we are glad to have with us Matthew Whitaker, former acting U.S. Attorney General and author of the new book, Above the Law, the inside story of how the Justice Department tried to subvert President Trump. We were talking a little bit about the Mueller report and uh, and everything that went down in the last, well, the course of the last several years against President Trump, and now we're at a spot, Mr. Whitaker, where we have Obamagate, as the president likes to call it, and we have the situation with General Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor. What do you make of what this judge recently did to General Flynn? The DOJ had recommended dropping charges. It, obviously, that was warranted. And this Judge Emmett Sullivan mm-hmm. has delayed dismissing the charges. Now a federal appeals court is jumping in. What do you make of this aftermath here? Shouldn't it be a clear cut thing that General Flynn should be exonerated from that entire trap he was a part of? Yes, I think you know Judge Sullivan appears to be out on a limb here. The Department of Justice determined the, the dismissal of Flynn's case, that it's squarely within their prosecutorial discretion. It's not the judge's role to second guess. That exercise of charging authority by DOJ system is based on what Judge Sullivan is doing. It is on its head. I am glad to see that uh, General Flynn's counsel has sought a writ of mandamus, which is essentially a order from a higher court telling the judge to do his job. Rule 48 of the federal rules of criminal procedure are very clear. I'm I'm a former U.S. attorney for five and a half years in the Bush administration. Dismissal of cases is perfunctory. The judge doesn't have discretion to run his own proceeding or conduct his own prosecution. Uh, It is uh, just the system is not set up that way. And so I expect when the dust settles and everybody has, you know, kind of done their job and, and, and that Judge Sullivan or a replacement judge will dismiss General Flynn and he will be um, dismissed with prejudice and therefore he will be exonerated and no longer subject to any of these types of charges. Oh, that was terrible. What did you make when you were in office, when you were looking at what was happening to General Flynn and to people like Carter Page? Obviously, you have a job to do and you have a certain way you need to do it. But how did you view all this from your seat there as acting U.S. Attorney General? Because the rest of us were saying these these poor guys. Yeah. So if you remember, I was chief of staff to Attorney General Sessions. And because of his recusal, I was not involved in any of those cases. And so they were playing out like, for me, like a lot of Americans, um, just in the newspaper and on TV, right. uh, I didn't have any, uh, you know, unique information. And it wasn't until General Sessions resigned and I became acting attorney general that I was read into that. Much of the Carter Page stuff was done and, you know, really was over before I even got to the Department of Justice in the in the fall of 2017. General Flynn was during a quiet period when he was he was pending um, sentencing, and it was before Sidney Powell had taken over the case and really raised so many of these important issues. And, and any documents that have now been turned over were buried deep, as you can imagine, in the Mueller investigation, and they were not raising them to my attention as their supervisor, and, and they probably should have, right. knowing the challenges that we now see in this investigation. So 
Um, you know, I'm glad that all of this has come to light. It is not how the Department of Justice is supposed to do work, do its work. You know, I insisted when I joined uh, and took over as the uh, acting attorney general that we follow regular order, that, you know, we do things consistent with the rules and regulations. And this is why, you know, on the cover of my book, Above the Law, you have Jim Comey, Andy McCabe, Peter Strzok, the people that didn't do things according to the rules. You know, I look at how, you know, this General Flynn in, uh, investigation was conducted and it was not properly predicated. It wasn't, you know, his his uh, statements were not material to any open investigation. And I also know that, you know, Jim Comey jokingly uh, says that he sent two agents over to interview uh, General Flynn inconsistent with the tradition and the rules at the Department of Justice. So, you know, that that's uh, that is uh, not the way things should have been done. It's not the way once I took over, we did them. And I know General Barr feels the same way. And I hope, you know, and, and I expect that there will be some accountability for these people that did break the rules. Oh, yeah, I hope so. And that's what a lot of people are concerned about, because they look at it from the vantage point of just being in middle America or wherever you happen to live, saying all these people, Rosenstein and and Carter, not Carter Page, but Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, and you had, as you mentioned, some of these others, Jim Comey. Will there ever be justice done? Will they ever unwind this gigantic ball of yarn to get to the bottom and, you know, issue indictments and have grand juries involved in that sort of thing? What, what sort of confidence do you have that this can all be unwound under Bill Barr and and justice will be done. Yeah, I, I have great confidence. And I know not only is Bill Barr committed to getting to the bottom of this and making sure that there's not only a full accounting of what happened, and that's one of the reasons John Durham is looking at the and investigating the origins of the Russian collusion fable. Uh, but I also know that anyone that can be prosecuted will be prosecuted. Anyone that can you know, be um, otherwise uh, held accountable for their wrongdoing in whatever manner, whether that's ethics complaints, whether that's some other sanction, certainly will. I, I will remind your listeners, because, you know, I'm from Iowa, and so I know exactly what how folks feel, because yeah. I am connected with the real world as well. And, you know, everywhere I went after I was done being acting attorney general, I heard, you know, sort of when will folks be account- held accountable? We have to have people held accountable. I think that day is near. I feel great confidence that we are we are we are on our way to finally not only understanding what happened, but to also holding those accountable for what did happen. Do you think it would go as far as holding the former president accountable? Well, I listened very carefully to what General Barr said last week, and he said that he had no current information that would support an investigation into President uh, Obama or Vice President Biden. Doesn't mean you couldn't develop that. I'm, you know, I continue to be very concerned about the January 5th meeting that happened in 2017 uh, with many of these characters, included the president, included the vice president, included the FBI director Comey, and it was ultimately recorded on a in an email on January 20th by Susan Rice, who was the national security advisor at the time. And so I think uh, you know I think a lot of questions need to be answered. I hope that Congress takes up its responsibility to also have some hearings. And I know that uh, Lindsey Graham and the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to have some hearings. That's a good step um, because I think some of these folks need to answer and uh, and explain what happened and why these decisions were made that turned out to be 
completely inconsistent with any evidence that they had in front of them at the time. Well, right. And it's just really maddening to me to hear President Obama recently saying that dropping the case against General Mike Flynn is a threat to the rule of law. I mean, we want the rule of law. That was what was flouted in all of this. And and you're dealing with a couple of different issues here when you talk about the deep state, as you do in your book, and you talk about what's going on at the DOJ and, and you know how in the world do you deal with it all? What is the answer? Because you talk about the unitary executive theory. You talk about the danger of an independent DOJ. What are some of the steps that need to be taken, do you think, to clean it all up? Or can it all be cleaned up, given some of the problems with having career bureaucrats in place? Right. I, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I think it can be cleaned up. Uh, to go back to your earlier point, though, we should not be for the prosecution or against the prosecution of General Flynn. You're right. We should be for justice and for the rule of law. And, you know, what the law demands, and General Barr has been very clear about this, is the law demands that General Flynn's case be dismissed. And so, again, this is not, you know, a political football that's kicked back and forth. This is someone's life. This is someone's liberty. And when the rules are not followed, when cases aren't predicated properly, when statements are not material to any ongoing case, that the law demands... Uh, that General Flynn be dismissed. And everyone, every American of good faith and sound judgment should agree with that outcome and should celebrate that. Now, to your other point as to how to clean up the Department of Justice, I think, you know, to some extent, you know, I talk in this book about how we uh, got rid of many of these people. You know, Jim Comey was fired. uh, Andy McCabe was fired. Peter Strzok was fired. Lisa Page left. James Baker, who was the general counsel at the FBI, left. Uh, so many other people were were were, were uh, run out of the FBI because you know this is not the way that we did business at the Department of Justice. This is not the way FBI should conduct business. And so there was some accountable. You know there was there were people that lost their jobs. Now is that enough? I think we're going to learn in the review. And I also think you know going forward we need to make sure that we are continue to hold everyone at the Department of Justice to the highest ethical standards. And ultimately, if rules are broken, if if procedures and, and policies are bent like they were in the past, that we hold those folks accountable. And uh, whether it's criminal, whether it's, you know, sort of uh, some other uh, employment means or other, you know, ethical or other considerations, we do use all the tools in the tool belt to make sure that, that, we, that we do follow the rule of law and that we can be above reproach because it was a very, very sad chapter in the history of the Department of Justice. It was terrible. How do you reflect back on your tenure there in terms of what you were able to do? You mentioned some of the people who left and some of the people who were dismissed, which was a very important start, but clearly the deep state still exists. When you look back, what were your proudest accomplishments, would you say, in regard to cleaning up the DOJ? Well, again, I, I think I think you know eliminating some of these people from their positions uh, that they abused, I think it's very important. You know, I think we passed some really good policies as it related to uh, not only immigration um, enforcement, but also, uh, you know, we, we, we I, I sat in, on the School Safety Commission. We delivered a, a fairly robust report to the president that outlined, you know, some common sense approaches to school gun violence mm-hmm. and, you know, so many other things that I outlined in the book that uh, we accomplished, you know. And I, I still, and it's something I'm still talking about today, it's just, what we accomplished in the religious liberty uh, arena, I think, is second to none, not only defending those rights uh, of, of folks, but expanding uh, you know, those protections and making sure that people of faith 
uh, can worship uh, as they want to worship. And so, you know, I, I'm very proud and happy with what we accomplished during my time and my second tour of duty at the Department of Justice. And you know, you never know. Good Lord willing, maybe I'll get a third. Wouldn't that be great? Well, we thank you for that, because I can say from on a, on account of a lot of Christians across this country, we're deeply grateful to you. Above the Law is the name of the book. Matthew Whitaker, thank you so much, Mr. Whitaker. Take care. Thank you. Good talking to you. Thank you. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine, based on the true story of championship-winning quarterback Kurt Warner. American Underdog, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters everywhere Christmas Day. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. The Lord Jesus told us in Matthew 6 not to store up our treasures on earth, but to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And he said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, what does this mean for us when we examine how we handle our finances and issues like debt and giving and saving? We know money is necessary, but we're also told in Scripture not to be lovers of money, even as we remember that everything that we have belongs to God and we have to be good stewards. We're going to talk about it all today with Nelson Sir. He is the founding and lead pastor of the Journey Church and also founder of ChurchLeaderInsights.com and the Renegade Pastors Network. Today, we'll be discussing with him how to get out of debt and find financial freedom. His book is called The Generosity Secrets. Nelson, great to have you with us. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Janet, and uh, Merry Christmas to you. Great to be with you and all of your listeners. Excited about being with you today. Well, we're excited you're here. Merry Christmas to you as well. You know what it's like to have a debt problem, don't you? I, I mean, this, <laughs> this is a com- common thing I know, but you just lay it out there at the beginning. You know what it's like to be in debt. Uh, somehow I managed for most of my life to avoid debt, but then, like a lot of people, got married, made some dumb decisions, took on some debt. Next thing I know, twenty-two grand in debt. Didn't take long to get there in New York City, but uh, I managed somehow to do it. Yeah. Well, how did you get there? Did you have any? Was it kind of accidental that you fell into debt and things just got kind of overwhelming, or was it that you just didn't care? What was your mindset as you were getting into that kind of deep debt? Yeah, well, it was a strange combination of apathy and ignorance. And uh, so I don't know it, I don't care is the issue <laughs> as it might be. But, you know, I became apathetic about uh, uh, dealing with my money. You just sort of put it off over to the side and uh, you're buying things that uh, on credit or you're, you're taking advantage of those offers they make. And they even do this online now, but back then it was at the store. You know, they would offer you 20% if you would open up a credit card. And just little by little, it grew. And unfortunately, what was happening at the same time, Janet, is that was also a time where I wasn't fully honoring God with my finances. <laughs> and that sounds strange to say as a pastor, but you know, the first part of my ministry, I did really well. I was a very consistent tither, a very consistent giver. But then I, I kind of began to back away from that. I became more of a tipper, if you will, than a, a tither. And I don't think that's a coincidence that my debt went up as my giving Uh, generosity went down. Interesting. Well, you also talk about the problem of bad decisions and the fact that most of our money problems do come down to bad decisions. What are some of those warning signs for listeners? Because I know you list some of them in the book. If you're doing certain things, you might be having a problem with money. 
Well, one of the things is, do you, do you know if you're in debt or not? Uh, if I ask you, and if I could go around to all of the listeners and just say, how much debt are you in? Uh, some, of course, would be able to say, I'm in zero debt, and praise the Lord for that. I could say that today. I've been debt-free now uh, for almost 20 years. But uh, that's one sign if you just can't answer the question. And it's actually gotten harder to determine the answer to that question as we moved from having to pay physical bills with physical checks to now having things automatically deducted from our bank account, or as I do and probably you do as well, we pay most of our bills online. And so we don't always keep up with uh, how much debt we're really in. So that's a warning sign. But then the other is, uh, are you able to save? Uh, how much money do you have in savings? And as terrible as this pandemic uh, has been, uh, it has taught and reminded many of us that the basics matter, like uh, being able to save and being able to be prepared for what might happen if we're laid off for a month or two from our job. That's a big one. Do you have opportunities that are put in front of you? I would even say kingdom opportunities, like to give to special things at your church or give to ministries that you want to support or go on a mission trip. And I know uh, that hasn't been one we've been able to do this year, but hopefully it'll open back up very soon. But you say, I can't do it because I just don't have the finances to do it. These are things that all uh, tell us that, you know, something's not quite right in our finances. And it really comes down to, can I do the things that God wants me to do? Or am I limited in doing what God wants me to do because I'm not in the financial health or shape that I need to be in? Yeah. How much of this would you say with most people comes down to just not earning enough versus wanting to have things they truly can't afford? Well, my favorite line on this, and uh, this is not original with me, I actually tried to trace uh, this back as I did the history. And one of the things about writing a book on finances, and I'm kind of a history buff, has been to chase down some of these uh, ideas that uh, are very common. But where, who said it first? Where did this originate? And I really haven't been able to find the original uh, uh, person who said this. But I, I love the phrase that financial freedom has nothing to do with how much you make. It has everything to do with how much you spend. Mm. And so what happens is oftentimes we say, well, if I just made a little bit more, I would be financially free. If I just made more, I would be able to uh, be more generous. If I just made more, I would be able to do more of the stuff that God called me to do. But what happens is as our incomes go up, so, do, so does our uh, commitment to materialism, so do our greeds. Uh, go up. And so we end up just spending more as we end up making more. So it's really not an income issue. It's really uh, an obedience issue. Yeah, that's a good point. So when we're looking at God's Word and we're trying to get a handle on this issue of money, as I mentioned at the outset, we understand some of the things the Lord said about money and money, you know, God, you can't serve God and mammon. And we, we, we know these verses, but what do you think are the most important principles to take away from the Bible concerning how we view our possessions? and our money. Well, one thing that you, you mentioned there that I think is so important is uh, it really is amazing how often the Bible talks about money. And uh, I, I think it, it, you know, there, there's different counts depending on translations and whether it's money or mammon in the King James Version or different things. But you know, Jesus taught more about money than he did any other subject except for the kingdom of God. And I think one of the reasons the Bible talks about money so much is because God knew that we were going to struggle with it. And so God said, I know that money is going to be a struggle with you, so I'm going to give you plenty of advice 
And if you just look at the book of Proverbs alone, it seems like every third verse is, is about money. So when you begin to look at that in a, in a big picture way and then categorize it down, uh, I think it really comes down to one uh, word, and that is that we are managers of our money, and that what God is trying to teach us throughout Scripture is how to manage our money, which we will soon learn is really not our money, it's actually the Lord's money. And uh, it's a startling fact when I tell people that you don't own anything. Uh, And, you know, the old saying about uh, the hearse and the U-Haul trailer and things like that, you can't take it with you when you go. So what happens is God gives us money in this life as a tool to be used for His purposes and as a way for us to invest in eternity. And so we really are struggling all of our life to become good managers of what God has uh, entrusted to us. Right. That's a really important thing for people to understand. So when you're talking about the generosity secret, how does that fit into this picture of managing your money biblically? Okay, this is just you and I talking, right? We're, we're, I want to tell you a secret. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the generosity secret, but you can't tell anybody else. You have to keep this to yourself. So this will just be between me and you, Janet. But the generosity secret is that generosity is the secret. <laughs> Profound. <laughs> now, now, don't tell anybody that. I, I can't have that getting out because, you know, I've got a 270-page book uh, about this. So yeah. we, can't have, we can't have this information just get out there, you know, on, <laughs> on your radio show to your thousands and tens of thousands of listeners. But that really is what it comes down to. And I think that's been the missing piece. That uh, and, and I think that's what we've sort of missed, even in uh, Christian books about money. We've, we've started at step two, which is the practicalities, which is the implementation of things like how to get out of debt or how to build an eternity portfolio or whatever it might be. But we've missed that initial piece uh, when it comes to generosity. And so I really think that's what God is trying to teach us. And, and here's why I think that's so important. The reason we get into trouble financially, the reason we get upside down on our mortgages, the reason we go into debt is because of, to say it strongly, a sin issue. Yeah. We're disobeying God. But then that's so strong, you know, you want to put a name on it. So what's the name of the sin? Well, then it gets even worse because the name of the sin is idolatry. Oh, man. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to run to a break. We'll come back with Nelson Searcy, The Generosity Secret is his book. Stay with us. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. Maybe I can just have my baby. It don't matter what nobody said. This is the end of the story of a young mom who planned to end her pregnancy but chose life after visiting a preborn center. Preborn steps into the lives of hurting young women who are being told that a preborn baby is not a life. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct answer to Planned Parenthood, helping young moms choose life. I feel like it was meant for me to have this baby. This is something I give me for a reason. You can be a part of choosing life with young hurting women across the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help save 400 babies by the end of the year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies from abortion. And now, through a match, your gift of $140 will actually help save 10 babies instead of five. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. 
855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent his son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bibleist believers around the world for only five $5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800-YESWORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800-YESWORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It's great to have you with us and great to have with us Nelson Searcy. His book is called The Generosity Secret, How to Get Out of Debt and Find Financial Freedom. And I am still really reeling from the reveal here that you gave to me just between you and me, Nelson, (laughs) that the secret is generosity. And you mentioned the problem of idolatry as well. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so, you know, as you build this case that we get into debt because of sin, we disobey God's word, and then the sin, the name of the sin is idolatry, and that's such a strong word, it's hard to get our hands around it. So what I've done, in hopefully a theologically appropriate way, is I've sort of softened that word, and instead of calling it idolatry, let's call it materialism. So the big issue when it comes to our finances is that we live in a material world and that we're all committed to materialism, and that's why we spend more than we make uh, to impress people we don't like, as the old (laughs) saying goes, but it's materialism. So then you ask yourself, okay, if that's the sin, how do I break that sin? How do I deal with that sin? Or to use a word that we've become very familiar with this year, what's the vaccine (laughs) for that sin. Well, there's only one vaccine, and it's generosity. So the antidote to materialism is generosity, because materialism is living with a closed fist of saying, this is mine, 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 whereas generosity is open-handed living, where we say to God, it's really yours, yours, yours. That's really important. I mean, this is something that we think about all the time. What is in your heart? Uh, You can have a dollar, you can have a million dollars, but if you are holding on to your million dollars with all your might and never giving any of it away, uh, you can be in way worse shape than the person who only has a dollar and gives away the dollar. And there are people like that. I mean, I see that all the time, people who really don't have money, but they're so generous and they never seem to be in want either. That's the funny thing. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, when I was writing this book, I, I tried to run it by people that I know who are of high wealth. And, uh, you know, pastoring a church that has locations in New York City and in Boca Raton, Florida, you know, we have people in our church that are in high wealth. So I said, okay, you know, you, I didn't really tell them I picked them out for that reason, but I said, you know, take a look at this and tell me, does that ring true? But then at the same time, we have people in our church who are in tremendous need and they've been laid off and they've been dealing with great difficulty this year. And I said, tell me what you think about this. And that again goes to that idea that uh, just like financial freedom has nothing to do with how much you make, generosity 
has nothing to do with how much you make. Because the widow in the scripture who gave the mite, yes. she was lifted up as saying, this is someone who we would say gave a little, but gave generously. But then at the same time, we see Mary who used the expensive bottle of perfume, and that was an extravagant gift. And she too was lifted up because their hearts were right. So it's not the amount that counts. It's the, the, the heart and the commitment to God that counts. Yeah, that's so great. And, and you're talking about the widow's might, and Mark 12 is one of the passages that, that talks about that. And Jesus said, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Yeah. You know, and that's how the Lord looks at it. So when you're talking about generosity, obviously there are a lot of things you can do with your money. You can, uh, you definitely need to support your church, support missions, these Christian things, uh, you know, not only your local church, but also important endeavors, ministry, mission work across the globe, things like that. All of those things as Christians are necessary for us to support. But what about the rest of what you do with your money? Because if you're in debt and you're trying to get out of debt, it can take years to get out of debt if you're very, very deeply into it. How do you advise somebody to really turn the corner on financial management such that generosity becomes more of a way of life? Yeah, and that's uh, that's really what this book is all about. It, I really want it to be a, a very practical book. And these are principles that I've taught to young professionals and uh, uh, adults in my church over and over and over. And, you know, we've literally had thousands of testimonies of people who have used these principles. So I, I know that they work, and, and a lot of times they are just very basic kind of ideas. So the first step is to take an act of generosity. Do something that's generous. Uh, give for the first time to your church. Give $5 more, or I use the example in the book of giving $50 more. And that may be a significant gift for a lot of people, but that, that's counterintuitive because you say, shouldn't that go to my debt? Well, the first thing you want to do is you want to give generously. And then the second thing you want to do is figure out how much debt that you're actually in and develop a repayment plan. And for me, when I was in that $22,000 worth of debt, uh, I began to look at that, and I used uh, these common approaches to pay off the small debt first and then roll that into the bigger debt and other strategies that have been written about uh, by authors who are better than me. And, and I used that strategy, and I said, it's going to take me seven years. <laughs> but I'm like, well, you know, if I don't start now, it's just going to be longer later. And so I had to break the materialism issue by giving generously, restoring, in my case, giving the tithe to, to my church, and then giving my offering as God allowed to other ministries and things I wanted to support. And what that gave me is that, God, that gave me now God's blessing on my repayment plan. So I can put together my own repayment plan, but if I give generously first, in a way that I don't fully understand, I get God's blessing on that repayment plan. Yeah. And then I begin to implement that and then in an amazing way, God adds his power to it. And what I've seen over and over is a seven-year repayment plan, at least in my case, turned into a four-year repayment plan because God blessed it. And that's why I talk about in the book about uh, many times as you put together a repayment plan, you can see it done in half the time. Because when you start with generosity, you get God's power on your plan, and then his power accelerates your plan. And so it may be even easier than you thought it would be. 
Interesting. And that's really the crux of it is you have to make that decision initially to get out of debt and to go in the right direction. And another thing, and this kind of brings up, uh, you know, an irritation that I have, for example, with the government where they're constantly trillions of dollars in debt. And I always turn around and say, why don't they stop spending so much? But this is a problem with individuals, obviously, as well. If you want to go and buy your five dollar Starbucks every single morning and you don't really have the financial situation to afford that, get in the habit of making your coffee at home. You know, buy a big thing of Folgers. It'll last you a long time. Little decisions like that can really pay off in the long run, can't they? Oh, it's incredible what those kind of things will do. And uh, it's incredible how our culture, and I would even say, you know, our broken culture, because that's why we get into debt. We follow the, we follow the world's way. We follow quite frankly, Satan's way. And Satan has convinced us that what 20 years ago cost a quarter and came with free refills at the local diner uh, there where you are in, in, in Dallas or you know where I was living at the time in New York, now we pay for one cup full for $5. Oh, yeah. And uh, we say, well, it's only $5, but you multiply that by, say, 20 business days, then you're talking about $100. You multiply that over 12 months. Now you're talking about $1,200. Well, <sighs> that would probably probably be enough to pay off your smallest debt. And then you do things like uh, take your own sandwich or take your own soup uh, to work, and you're beginning to multiply it. Or oh, now we've got these amazing tools uh, like eBay or, or other online places where we can sell our stuff. Yes. And we can sell this stuff that got us into trouble. And yeah, we're not going to get back what we originally paid for it because it's now used, but we can use that to pay down uh, our debt. And so I just talk about all these little factors uh, in the book and things like you mentioned uh, there as well that I'm going to put in the next version of the book because <laughs> you gave me some good ideas. <laughs> then all of that begins to come together and we get God's power on top of that. And the next thing you know, it's not easy, but it's not going to be as overwhelming as we think it's going to be. Well, right. And I also like that you encourage people to set goals for giving and goals for saving and goals for investing. That's important, too, to look at the entire picture and decide what goes where. It's when you get sloppy about what you're doing with your money that you can make these big mistakes, it would seem. Yeah. And what I like about goals is uh, it, it comes across a little better than budget you know, yes. sometimes the B word's a little scary to each other, and that's really what, you know, our, our government's problem is. They don't live on a budget, and, and we don't either. <laughs> right. uh, and thankfully, some states require that they stay within the budget. But budget has become a little bit of a negative word. So I talk about goals for giving. And so there again, you start with generosity. And uh, there, there are listeners who, uh, if they really work this plan in five, ten years from now, they could give more than they ever could possibly uh, imagine. I'm not going to give my number, but I set a goal for giving, and it, it was so far beyond anything I thought I could give on a pastor's salary. But yet God began to work that out, and things began to happen, and that's another book for uh, another day. But you have a, a goal for giving, so that's generosity. Yeah. Then you have a goal for saving. And it's okay to save. And then you have a goal for investing. And the reason you've got to have these goals is if you don't tell your money where it should go, you're always going to wonder where it went. Wow, that is so good, Nelson. Well, Nelson Searcy has been with us. Again, the name of his book, The Generosity Secret, How to Get Out of Debt and Find Financial Freedom. Thank you so much, Nelson, for being with us. Oh, my privilege. And uh, thank you, Janet. And God bless you. God bless you, too. Thanks again for being here. And thank you for joining us on Janet Meffer today. Always a pleasure to have you along on the broadcast, and we'll see you next time. Take care.
This hour of Janet Meffer Today has been brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine, based on the true story of championship-winning quarterback Kurt Warner. American Underdog rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters everywhere Christmas Day.